Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning, we continue our series on Christianity in the 21st century. We are taking time to consider what a well-thought-out Christian faith looks like for us today. The great 20th century theologian Paul Tillich argued that in every age, Christians must go through the process of correlating the insights of the faith to the worldview of that age. Being a thinking Christian is a constant process of considering what makes sense. It's not about forcing yourself to believe the impossible, but crafting a system where belief is possible. And even more, it's good news. So far over these past four weeks, we have considered what sin means in a contemporary context. We've looked at the nature of God. We've tackled the tricky issue of sex and sexual ethics. And we have thought about Jesus, who he was, and why he is still relevant. Today, we turn our attention to the Christian life. What does it mean to live life as a Christian? What is the Christian ideal for how we should live our lives? What are the marks of a true Christian today? And so I put that same question to you. If someone were to ask you, what is the goal of the Christian life? What would you say? How would you respond? The tricky thing about this question is that the impression of what it means to be a Christian in a larger society is not always a positive thing. If I were to go back to the Northeast, let's say, and ask people what they thought a Christian looked like, chances are they wouldn't have the most charitable of responses. True, their image of, of a Christian is mostly a caricature, not reality, but there's enough to these common perceptions of Christians that it's worth noting. One thing that has dogged Christians from time immemorial is the charge that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. As G.K. Chesterton noted over a hundred years ago, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. There's, a class, there's that classic stereotype of a Christian who has been saved and then lords her salvation over others. She slips into conversation that refrain, have you committed yourself to Christ or some version thereof? She casually mentions her volunteering at a homeless shelter in such a way that it makes it clear that she is superior to those around her for her great piety. She laments all of those who haven't yet been saved. The workers in the vineyard are indeed few. This type of holier than thou Christian tends to encourage people to do whatever they can not to become a Christian. Another version of the Christian stereotype is someone who is saved, but doesn't act in any way differently than he did previously. In the words of the journalist T.R. Ibarra, a Christian is a man who feels repentance on a Sunday for what he did on Saturday and is going to do on Monday. <laughs> Once this type of Christian leaves the parking lot from church, he proceeds to go and do very unchristian things. There's another common caricature, though perhaps less common these days, and that is of the dour, self-righteous Christian. This is the person whose faith is all about self-control and self-sacrifice. He pushes himself relentlessly to live up to some ideal of moral perfectionism. Everything in life is carefully regulated, from the early rising in the morning to working all day. That is the cross that he must bear to walk up his own Calvary in the bloody footsteps of his savior. And because this Christian pushes himself so hard, he expects everyone else to do the same. When others fail to live up to this high standard, this Christian can't help but judge their weakness, or if he's feeling more charitable, their lack of grace. 
Another caricature that has only arisen to prominence in the past 50 years is that of the prosperity gospel Christian. For this Christian, the ideal, is, the ideal life is one of wealth and leisure. Faith in Jesus will lead to wealth and success. You can measure someone's place before God based on their earthly material goods. Then we have the revivalist Christian, someone whose faith is rooted in emotional, ecstatic experiences of the Holy Spirit, a holy roller, as one might call him. I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. Each of these images of Christians is, as I said, a caricature. In my experience, Christians of all stripes tend to be loving, kind people. There are obviously exceptions, but that is true of every group. But there's some bit of truth in each of these images as well. Otherwise, they would not have such lasting power in our imaginations. Surveying all these popular images of what a Christian is, how might you respond? How would you defend the Christian life? Better yet, how might, you, how might you describe the Christian life? Each of the foregoing images of a Christian is based on some view of salvation. Salvation as committing yourself to Christ. Salvation is having the grace to live into an ideal of self-sacrifice. Salvation is earning lots of money. Salvation as the descent of the Holy Spirit. In a similar way, I think a well-considered concept of salvation is key to describing the Christian life for us today. As I mentioned in my first sermon in this series, salvation in our context is healing, wholeness. Salvation means being connected to God, the ground of our being, and being connected to ourselves. The word salvation literally comes from the Latin word salvus, which means healing. What is the Christian life? For starters, it means someone who's wholehearted, and that begins by being able to love ourselves. It is remarkable how often we can feel unworthy. We somehow don't live up to the expectations that others place on us or that we place on ourselves. We judge ourselves because our lives have not turned out the way we dreamed they might have. It is a natural tendency to look around at others, at our peers, and see the success that they've had. And then we turn around and judge ourselves for not having had that same kind of success. Have you noticed that we so regularly judge ourselves not against those who have done worse than we have, but against those who have excelled? We read books about great political leaders or famous business moguls. We watch great athletes on television or are in awe of famous movie stars. We flip through pictures on Instagram or advertisements in magazines and see people with perfect bodies and beautiful faces. When we receive report cards in school, we harped on the one B we got and not on the A's. When someone evaluates us, we hear that one criticism, but not the range of compliments. Whether we want to admit it or not, we judge ourselves for not being better. Why can't I lose those last five pounds? Why doesn't that boy or girl like me? Why am I not part of the popular crowd? Why is my relationship with my partner or spouse not perfect? Why are my kids not as successful as the kids of other parents? These questions haunt us, even though we try not to admit it. I think about my father. My father grew up in a suburb of Lowell, Massachusetts. He was very bright and took over my grandfather's drugstores by the age of 30. In addition, he had a high-up position in a local grocery store chain. He started small businesses. He invested his money in rental properties and stocks. He even taught as an adjunct professor at the College of Pharmacy in the area, instructing aspiring pharmacists in business know-how. 
He bought a home in one of the nicest suburbs of Boston, had a loving wife and three adoring children. He was involved in our church, was a member of the local country club and loved playing golf with his friends. Anyone looking at my father's life from the outside would see a sparkling success. And yet, when he looked around at others in my hometown, he couldn't help but be jealous of those who had higher paying jobs and nicer homes. Especially when he ran into trouble in his businesses, he began to resent the fact that his father had pushed him to take over the pharmacies. He wished he had taken a different path and say, gone into finance like some of his friends. In spite of everything he had, there was this nagging sense of unworthiness. When I was wrestling with my own sexuality, I was crippled by the belief that I was less than for being gay. It ate me up from the inside out. I hated myself for it. Regardless of whatever other accomplishments I might've had, that one thing dominated my self-appraisal and caused so much damage to my psyche. I can still remember so clearly when I was in divinity school, going up for communion during the Friday Eucharists that we had at the Yale Divinity School Chapel. One thing I treasured so much about communion was that I could hear those words in the liturgy, eat the bread and the cup and drink the cup and feel, really feel that I was loved by God and accepted for who I was. I can't tell you how healing that was. That is the Christian life, or at least part of it. To be able to hear those words, you are loved, you are accepted, and to believe them, to let them sink in and change your soul. I love working with people who've had that experience, who, who've gone through that journey of self-acceptance. Those who are able to be comfortable in their own skin, who know that they are worthy, who are wholehearted, are able to open themselves up to others in love in a way that is not possible when we're crippled by self-judgment. So that is a major part of the Christian life, to go on that journey of self-acceptance, long and hard as it may be. But there are other parts of the Christian life as well. As I mentioned in that, first, in that first sermon in the series, part of the human condition is being separated, not only from our God or ourselves, but also from others. We need connection with others to feel whole, one of the books that stuck with me from college was Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. In that book, Putnam argues that over the past 70 years, American society has seen a precipitous decline in social connections, what he calls social capital. People used to join bowling leagues, service clubs like the Rotary Club, do things in organized groups regularly. This includes church attendance, particularly church attendance in smaller churches where you're known and you know everyone else. Instead, Americans spend more time watching TV, playing video games, surfing the internet, or hanging out with the same small group of friends. Putnam links this decline in social capital, this decline in connections with a variety of social ills, from higher crime rates to lower trust in institutions. Being connected to other people makes society safer and happier. And I would go one step further than Putnam and argue that connection is essential to our salvation, to our wholeness and healing. Think of the periods when you've experienced grief, whether from the death of a loved one or the loss of, say, a job or a friendship. What helps you get through that grief? It is other people. It is the connection. It is the cards and the food that people send, the time they spend with you. There is no magic word that someone can say to make grief go away. But the healing in grief comes through others. We need that. We need that expression of God's love. Connection 
is a manifestation of the Christian life. Another hallmark of human society and human life is the reality of trauma. Trauma comes in many forms, and it's easy to discount its effect on us and those around us. There are, there are the obvious cases of trauma, wounds that linger, linger and harm someone for decades, people who were beaten or sexually abused as children, or those who had to endure assault or rape at any time carry trauma with them wherever they go. Only in the last few decades have the full implications of this trauma been thoroughly researched. We also see the trauma brought on by war. PTSD shows up in alarming numbers among those who, those who were involved in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. The level of trauma sustained and the damage varies, but it has lasting impact. But there are other smaller traumatic events in our lives that can have major re repercussions as well. One could argue that the 9-11 terrorist attacks were an example of collective trauma that changed the way the US interacted with the rest of the world. Suddenly there were enemies everywhere. Everything was painted in black and white. For me, the damage my house sustained during Hurricane Harvey caused a degree of trauma. I will never forget coming home back to my house on, on the Saturday of Hurricane Harvey to find water everywhere and spending the next three hours doing my best to clean up the water while putting buckets all over my bedroom, hoping to catch all the leaks. For the next week, I frantically worked to dry out the house, spray the walls for mold, and look around for where the next leak would appear. For a year afterwards, every time a rainstorm came, I could feel my body tense up. Embarrassing moments from childhood can lead to trauma, trauma that haunts us for years. When we take time to think about it, there's far more trauma in our lives than we usually care to admit. In her book, Trauma and Grace, Theology in a Ruptured World, Serene, Joan argue, Serene Jones argues that the key for healing trauma is restructuring our imaginations. What she means by that is that we have to create stories and narratives that interpret trauma in ways that lead to healing rather than rupture. Reimagining our world will bring salvation, at least in part, for those who are suffering from trauma. The Christian church provides that through the scriptures, the liturgy, the community. There is trauma throughout the Bible, from enslavement in Egypt, the exile in Babylon, to the cross itself. There's also a constant narrative of healing and wholeness brought about by God in response. After pain and suffering, there is return. There is resurrection. What happens when we internalize that narrative rather than the narratives that we might find in society more broadly? Victory is not through power over others, but power made perfect in weakness. Success is measured by love and healing, not the treasure we store up on earth where moth and rust consume. There are so many ways we can respond to trauma. What would it mean to respond in the Christian way? Restructured imaginations are a part of the Christian life. Christians see the world through the hopeful lens of the resurrection and the dawning kingdom of God. Now there's a final element of the Christian life that I wanna raise up. The Christian life is about healing wholeness, about accepting that we are accepted. It is also about connection, connection with others in ways that can heal and lift us up and bring joy and love. The Christian life is also about telling the narratives of the faith and embodying that narrative in liturgy and worship. But any description of the Christian life, particularly for Protestants, would be incomplete without bringing up the concept of grace. Grace is an expression of goodwill, a free gift without any expectation of something in return. The ultimate expression of grace for Christians, 
is that God loves us first. That is, that is one of the basic assumptions of Christianity. God's love is unconditional. This concept fits in well with how I described God three weeks ago. God is everywhere and in everything. God is that force of creativity and connection that lures us towards loving ourselves and others. God is present, constantly present. It is that first awareness of God's presence that lets us know that we are accepted. It is what undergirds the entire conversation around salvation. It is God's loving presence that allows us to reach out to others for connection. It is the basis for the stories we tell in worship and our faith that can bring healing from trauma. Once we are aware of God's grace, it allows us to see the world around us with new eyes, with graced eyes. We can see the woundedness, the brokenness of others, and then not respond out of a place of woundedness, but out of healing. God's grace towards us is the source of our, of our, of our forgiveness and our ability to forgive others. We're all broken. When someone hurts us out of, out of his brokenness, we can respond with grace. That's, what's bring, that's what brings healing to the world. Whenever I bring up the concept of grace living, I'm reminded of a famous quotation of Martin Luther's. Luther was corresponding with his good friend, Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon was lamenting the various sins that he had committed. In response, Luther urges him to sin boldly, but to believe in the gospel even more boldly. In other words, don't get caught up in obsessing over individual things you might have done wrong. We all do things we regret. We are sinners. We are broken. We live in a state of separation. Rather than dwell on the result of, results of that brokenness, focus on the forgiveness and acceptance and love we find from God. See the world through the lens of grace and be an instrument of healing in a world that so desperately needs it. That is the Christian life. It's what it means to be Christian. In our passage from the Gospel of John, Jesus reminds us that he is the good shepherd. Our task as Christians is to follow Jesus, to heed his words, to live life as he would want. We are tempted at various times to enter the gate, not through Jesus, but through the ways of the world. We are tempted by sin, by our own brokenness to act in certain ways. But if we do embrace Jesus, if we embrace his model of living, we will have life and have it abundantly. That is what the Christian life is all about. It's about abundant life. That does not come through our possessions or through various successes we might have achieved. There are endless stories of rich people who are miserable and alone. In the same way, there are those whose success has only made their lives more difficult and devoid of meaning once they reach the top. True meaning, true life, true abundance is about living life in a wholehearted way. It is about accepting ourselves, about being connected to others, about telling stories of resurrection and life. Abundant life is a life of grace, about feeling the forgiveness and love that God offers us in all sorts of ways, and then passing that on to others. In that way, we bring about the kingdom of God by living a graced life and being grateful for it. I hope when someone asks you what makes a Christian, you can have an answer for that person. What makes a Christian? Someone who embraces abundant life. Not someone who has life without pain, but someone who can live a connected and authentic life, even amidst the inevitable pain that life offers. This is no easy task. In fact, it is a lifelong task. There's a reason why we join together as a church and keep coming back to worship God. We need to be reminded of what we're aiming for again and again. We need one another. We need the good news that we are accepted. Most especially, we need to continually seek God's loving presence, which is the source of grace. 
It is my sincere hope that you'll be able someday to look back on your life and say, truly God was with me. Thanks be to God.